Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, October 27th. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got a lot on the show today. Long-term care advocate, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, on recent announcements of more money into the system for inspection. But if inspection doesn't come with results, what's the point of inspectors? We'll talk about that. Dr. Stephanie Schwinard uh, from RMC will join us about the Trudeau cabinet shuffle. Mark Garneau left without a post. Was that by far the most surprising thing to happen? And we'll also talk about uh, COVID. And uh, Sabina Vohra-Miller, our guest, and we'll get into the concept of mandating the vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds. The FDA did approve it for emergency use, but there were some on that FDA call, which was released. I'm all for transparency. That's great that it was, that are hesitant to mandate it. And you can understand the concept, and you can understand the arguments for and against. You can. Every family's different. Every kid's different. Uh, for 5- to 11-year-olds. So all that coming up on the Toronto Today podcast. Uh, interesting stuff from the province yesterday. Um, and it goes a ways, but a lot of people feel it's it's uh, the proverbial Band-Aid solution. Having more inspectors doesn't necessarily create a environment where um, our residents are treated better in those homes. What are the penalties going to be? If the inspectors don't hound out penalties, there's no point in having more inspectors and on and on. It's a vicious circle. That's after 8 o'clock. So big cabinet changes, obviously, for the Trudeau government. We're very pleased to have our next uh, next guest on. We always enjoy our conversations. Political science professor at RMC. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Schwinar joins us. It's great to have you back. We gave you a break after the election. I think we were, you know, running you through the mill and we're like summer election, early fall election. Let's let's get to the bad weather and then get back into federal politics. Right. Hey, Rob. Oh, sorry. I got her now. Thank you. Go ahead. Sorry. I couldn't hear you at the beginning there. We had some technical problems. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, I was just saying thanks for the break, but I'm I'm happy to be back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> was uh was the departure from any cabinet post of Mark Garneau the most surprising thing out there? Uh, it wasn't something that was speculated on uh, a fair bit that the minister of For- more foreign affairs would be the minister of of, of nothing after yesterday. No, that's uh, that's right. Uh, Mr. Garneau was uh, generally uh, seen as uh, being a veteran, someone who was competent, and and someone who should remain in cabinet. So I think uh, I think a lot of folks were very surprised to see uh, Madame Jolie come up <laughs> for uh, the post of uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, and Mr. Garneau to be nowhere to be seen at Rideau Hall yesterday. Uh, word out on the street, though, is that. Uh, uh, he's uh, he's been given the Stéphane Dion card. He'll be appointed ambassador, uh, probably to France in uh, the next little while. So uh, so he's not uh, he's not quite done uh, with politics. He'll just be serving in a different way. It also means a by election in uh, uh, in Montreal for uh, Notre Dame de Grâce uh, and Outremont, uh, which uh, I don't know how these people feel, but I feel like a lot of people were not. That mm-hmm. happy with uh, the first election. So by election, that's going to be interesting. Can anyone point at any form of tension or disagreement between the prime minister and, and Mark Garneau? They were both very front and center. Stephanie, as you know, uh, during our, our pullout from Afghanistan, as was Joe Biden in the United States, that, that seemed to dominate the news cycle for two weeks. And and the what ifs um, and, and what if we had done this or that sooner? Any point of, of you know, concept of a disagreement between these two about policy there? Well, Mr. Garneau was only in, in that position for about nine months, right? So mm-hmm. I, I frankly don't think it was because of a spat between himself and the prime minister that, that this uh, change happened. Uh, what we're hearing is that uh, Mr. Trudeau just wanted to show a different face with this new cabinet, wanted to show uh, a, uh, a a younger um, face to, to, to Canadians uh, and, and to uh, perhaps make... Uh, make Canadians forget a little bit that uh, this government has been uh, in place since 2015. So, uh, Mr. Garneau, of course, was one of the uh, one of the veterans, uh, one of the the very few around this table uh, with uh, with gray hair, if I may say. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so uh, I think that's what would explain his departure a little bit more, perhaps, than uh, mm-hmm. disagreements with uh, Mr. Trudeau. Do- uh, Dr. Stephanie Schwinar joining us, Global News Radio.
Radio 640 Toronto on Toronto Today with Greg Brady, the defense minister out. Um, and though this seemed an inevitability that Harjit Sajan would, uh, would, would be gone, Trudeau never did it unilaterally and never did it on its own. Is this meant to just be sort of, you know, a little bit of a shell game here? There were massive problems. There still are massive scandals still getting discussed within this department and within this portfolio. And and he was under harsh criticism for more what he didn't do than what he did. Um, was it inevitable that a change was made? Oh, absolutely. I think it would have been another scandal, quite frankly, if Mr. Mm -hmm. Sajjan had, had remained in, in, in that position at National Defense. Uh, everybody, including uh, from within that department, I think wanted uh, to uh, to get someone new at the helm to, uh, to, to you know, really tackle this issue of uh, problems of, of culture from within the institution. The fact that Mr. Sajjan was also uh, a former member of the armed forces was seen as a liability more than something helpful at this point as well. Uh, so having uh, Madame Anan uh, come in is, is seen as uh, generally a good thing. Someone from outside of the institution who may be able to better rethink how we do things. Uh, of course, it's going to be a, a huge task for her. Uh, I, I don't think it's a one minister task by any stretch of the term, uh, but but her appointment is received uh, quite well. I was going to ask that. Does this signify uh, Anand as a, a bit of a rising star? She's obviously got a lot of quote unquote face time, uh, you know, procuring vaccines and being front and center in that department. And, and let's face it, after an initial struggle um, in terms of vaccine procurement, things have gone, I don't know, phenomenally well in Canada. Uh, the, the argument that Aaron O'Toole was making on the other side, uh, which had some validation and, and had some steam maybe in February or March. Hey, we don't have enough vaccines uh, and, and we can't get them where they need to be in a hurry. That argument's been dead and buried for seven months now. And Anand being front facing seems to be a big reason why. And, and she gets a lot of credit for it. Yeah, absolutely. And her experience in procurement uh, will hopefully be helpful within uh, the Canadian Armed Forces. The, the you know, uh, procurement of material in uh, in in due time for uh, for the CAF is super important. And so the experience that she's developed very quickly in a moment of crisis uh, with the procurement of vaccines and PPE will, I think, come in handy in some respects in this new position. The guy that stays in cabinet that people are surprised at, and uh, you noted it on Twitter, and you wrote, prepare to watch heads explode in Western Canada tomorrow, uh, folks, in keeping with the Halloween theme, um, uh, is Stephen Gilbeau becoming um, environment minister. That's, he, he seemed to struggle considerably with Bill C-10, seemed to be, you know, had, had some real bad media missteps and moments uh, that went viral. I think a lot of people, to me, in, in my neck of the woods, Stephanie, were surprised that he remained a cabinet minister, period. Yeah, well, this is this can be explained by Mr. Gilbo's former life, right, as the uh, CEO of a of an environmental uh, group called Equitaire, which is very well known in Quebec. And, and so generally speaking, even on the international front, Mr. Gilbo is very well known in the environment circles. And mm. environment was really the position that he was hoping to get the first time around. Uh, however, uh, I think a lot of people would agree with you that his um, his uh, time at Canadian Heritage was not worthy of a uh, of a, per, uh, a performance review to bring him up to uh, to uh, the environment uh, position. However, it might be one in which he is able to perform better because that's what he knows really well. That being said, uh, obviously this sends a signal that uh, the Trudeau government wants to turn the dial on uh, on the issue environment, but. It's it's also a very divisive um, appointment, right? Uh, people from uh, the prairies were afraid that mm. Mr. Gilbo was going to become environment minister because he's seen out there as a radical. Uh, and so uh, in, in, in terms of uh, intergovernmental relations uh, between uh, the federal government and, and those three provinces more specifically, I think this can uh, mm. mean uh, a number of, of, of uh, you know, uh, number of things uh mr uh, kenny and mr mo particularly are uh rather displeased uh with mm. uh, with this appointment they they, they fear mr gilbo dr stephanie schwinard kind of to join us last thing for you um christian freeland holding both posts no one's surprised she still has them but can it be poked at by uh, the opposition can it be poked at by an aaron o'toole or a jagmeet singh that um that is too much on one person's plate in this particular liberal government I mean, uh, the proof will be in the pudding, right? Uh, mm -hmm. What uh, what I think will be uh, number one on, on uh, Christian Freeland's table will be the issue of inflation. Uh, 
uh, right now, I think that will be the, the number one criticism that we're going to hear from uh, from the opposition. The fact that Canadians are feeling pinched right now, that if uh, interest rates uh, start rising, it can mean uh, very bad things for the housing bubble. I think people in Toronto will feel that particularly. Uh, so, so I think the number one thing that she needs to focus on is uh, explain what is going on with, uh, with the inflation and demonstrate that the Canadian government has a plan to stop it. Dr. Stephanie Schwinard, great stuff. Thank you very much for joining us. That puts a lot in perspective. We always appreciate your time and, and always love when you're on our show. Thanks for having me once again. Have you got it. Uh, Toronto Today with Greg Brady, Dr. Stephanie Schwinard. Non-stop fun is our next guest. Not, I mean, you know, she's what she's done as a LTC advocate is very, very important. Um, and and we want to we want to get great energy from her. Sometimes she just doesn't say what she feels, and sometimes there's there's just sort of a flatness to her tone. Let's see if today improves. Doctor Vivian Stamatopoulos, our guest, uh, long-term care advocate. How about that intro? I'm not I'm not going to put up with your uh, malaise and your uh, your indifference to the topic anymore. I won't do it. You know, so funny, Greg. I was just telling your producer that I, I slept in and I never sleep in and I haven't had my coffee yet. And I'm like, oh man, this is subdued Viv today. This is not normal Vivian. So it's just hilarious that you, you led with that. But I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm waking up. I'm waking up. That's I'm how it works. Yeah. A caffeineless Dr. Stamatopoulos oh, is some, is some kind of, there's a five her. alarm fire happening now in my brain about this. <laughs> Well, this is her. <laughs> All right. So yesterday, here's the headline. You react to it for our audience. Ontario hiring yeah. new LTC inspection staff. What does that mean? Is it, is it good? Is it bad? Is it in between? Is the jury still out on whether this is like you think yeah. ultimately it's positive, but it has to go somewhere, right? Yeah, there's a couple things. Well, first, yeah, they're, they're throwing $20 million and hiring just under 200 inspection staff. And that's all staff, so administrative staff, too. But the one catch is that they're doing it by a year today. So, like, not a year exactly today, but fall 2022. So, it's not going to happen. They're not here already, right? So, they're going to go and hire them. Um, and that will bring us to a total of 344 on the ground inspectors by next year. I mean, it's better, but it, and I hey, I'd like to see more considering we do so few of these inspections. And the other troubling thing um, to point out is that they did not necessarily say they were going to bring back the resident quality inspections. And these are the vital, unannounced, facility-wide inspections. He made a comment about bringing back some, uh, some version of, of surprise inspections, but we don't know th those details yet. So we're waiting to see and, and learn more about that. But, you know, listen, when you talk to families, like, you know, homes were lucky to get one of these a year, right? So mm -hmm. let's say just around 600 a year. That went down to like under 10 the last year we have on record from the Ford government. So they all but eliminated them. So them bringing them back, it, you know, in some measure, which we don't know yet exactly what that is, isn't in and of itself, in my opinion, an admission of wrongdoing that, you know, Minister Fullerton would never agree that they haven't forbid she failed on anything. Uh, everything and everything, whatever. Yes. But um, at least this is some, in my opinion, some sort of admission that if you're admitting we need surprise inspections, however those are going to look like, then you're aware now, after what everyone has said, that that was a big mistake cutting them out. So what that looks like, how many they'll receive a year is, a, is another thing. I personally would like to see at least two a year, at least. I don't think we're going to see that. Um, but it, it's a start. But the bigger question, right, and Greg, we talked about this, the fact that we, we have inspectors in place, we have legislation that enables tools to go after these bad actors. And even the minister himself said yesterday in the press conference that the, the inspectors have had the ability to lay charges this whole time, well, since 2010. But only one charge has ever been brought forward under the Provincial Act, and that wasn't successful. So you're adding more inspectors now, but what's going to actually make them lay charges if they haven't been laying them before? And the bigger problem is, is that in this sector in Ontario, we have a terrible tendency of protecting the bad actors. We do. We protect them. Bill 218 is prime example. We created legislation, we, Ford, over the course of the pandemic to shield them from liability. I mean, you, that was abhorrent. You've never seen legislation like that before. So there, there's a clear problem with protecting the industry over protecting the residents and the, the workers. It does seem it seems a buck short and and not way more than a day late. And there just has to be true mm -hmm. accountability. The analogy yeah. I'd use is it's great if you've got uh, if you're trying to you know cut down on uh, on on excessive speeding on our highways. It's great if you have police out there. 
But if they're sitting in their cars and they're not giving out tickets, no one anecdotally eventually will will just yeah. start to recognize that and not worry terribly about people being yeah. pulled over. We all see somebody pulled over and we slow yeah. down. We don't necessarily exactly. slow down when we exactly. see a cop by the we're like, well, we're all going the same speed. He's not going to pick me. That feels like long term care homes. A hundred percent. Or, you know, as I've said, it's like when you get a written warning, if you get pulled over. Yeah. OK, you might have that moment like, oh, relief, but. You didn't have to pay that, however much it was. Well, women so, get that more than men. You just flash your smile you and your pearly white. Guy, you think a guy like me can get out of a ticket? Do you think a guy like me with a big mouth can get out of a ticket? There's no way. Not oh, e- stop. <laughs> but that's the point, right? Is that we don't ever, you know, all we do is give them written warnings. So yeah. I'm going to see the penalties with teeth. I want to see like the U.S., where they nail them with multi-million dollar penalties. They scare them out. They, they give them potential jail uh, terms. I mean, they're, and over the course of the pandemic, there's been a few states that have gone after them and actually charged them with manslaughter, the owners. So why are we protecting these owners? We could go down that path of, well, look mm-hmm. at the conflicts of interest between various governments and various, you know, very powerful people in the for-profit long-term care industry. They're all there. All you got to do is Google. In many, many uh, reports on the, uh, the fundraising efforts of a lot of these people with various people in charge right now and present. So it's a huge problem that the money that flows between the government and this sector, which enables the kinds of, you know, what we, we, term, we call regulatory capture, mm-hmm. Um, that the policies that come out just happen to be the ones that favor what the heads of these companies and what these CEOs want and their lobby. And that's what happens. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, our guest on Toronto Today. So I see yesterday that there is a long-term care home in London uh, that's now facing a charge under the Occupational Health and Safety Act. There was a COVID-19 outbreak. A registered nurse passed away um, who was 58 years old. The first pandemic-related death of an Ontario nurse yeah. I, you know, I, I guess that's a relief. The ONA says, well, this is good and, and oversight would have prevented this. But for yeah. people who had residents paying customers, if you will, die in long term care, uh-huh. especially prematurely, uh, they'd yeah. be looking at this going, why is there a charge for a nurse, 100%. but 100%. not for what happened to my father or spouse or whatever? Well, yeah, and not even just that. Keep in mind, there were 13 staff that died in Ontario in long-term care from COVID. So what about all the others? And then, yes, again, what about the 4,000 residents who died? Because we all know, we've been, play- we've been talking about this for God knows too long. There, there are so many cases of documented, documented by ministry inspectors, by paramedics, by the military of documented widespread um, infection prevention control negligence and, and preventable error that contributed to these deaths. Where are the charges? And I've said this so many times. It is so sickening to the families to see uh, families of the staff, families of the worker, families of the fam, you know, of the residents that this is the first charge. Are you joking me? Do you know that there's families in Durham that have tried to get Durham Region Police to go after Orchard Villa? And by the way, uh, yeah. Mr. Minister Phillips himself is in charge of whether they get that license. So that decision is underway right now. If they get that 30 year license, to continue operating for for another generation. I mean, the families are going to fight that with everything they have. And, and frankly, I wouldn't blame all the families that all of those terrible homes that were hit the hardest by clear negligence to go after any some sort of, you know, licenses being doled out. And another thing that people don't realize is that yesterday he also, you know, said in the press conference, Rod Phillips, the minister, that they have almost 10,000 for-profit bed licenses under construction or development right now that they have approved over what is 144 of the 220 projects underway for new construction builds because they're rushing to build homes right yeah this is the the, the thing let's look we, we built the homes we built the beds but they're throwing the money back to the same for profits many of which were the military homes that had demonstrated failure at protecting the residents and they're just giving them 30-year contracts to continue continue huh. this level of care it's horrifying families are uh, livid right now they are and i've got i got one going up in ajax that's sprouted up faster than any other building in ajax so there is th- yeah. they feel like it feels like they're working right it's like an olympic venue that's late yeah, for the yeah. olympics to start they are yeah. desperate to get that done probably before the next election and quickly that's where yeah. i want to go is 
I, I know you were disappointed during the federal campaign. I was too, with a father-in-law in long-term care. Um, with it not being a national topic, so much was thrown into debates. I get it. There's a lot of important issues on the table. Is this a slam dunk for Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca till point at? Now, admittedly, you can put point back to Del Duca and go, what did Kathleen Wynne do? What did Dalton McGinty do? And they'd be right about that. That would be yeah. good counter politics from the conservative party. But is yeah. this going to be the election issue that, that we think it is oh, next spring? I mean, I hope so. And, and granted, people like me, people like you, anyone that has any experience with long-term care, advocating, working in these homes, living in these homes, that's all we think about. Because, you know, reminder that this was the worst sector hit during COVID. Like, <laughs> you know, the vast majority of Canadian deaths, not just Ontario, but Canadian deaths were in long-term care. It is horrifying what happened. And the fact that we're... It hasn't been as big of an issue, and yes, certainly federally, I was disappointed. But again, the NDP has been the ones to step up. I mean, federally mm. too, right? Uh, Jagmeet Singh was it was always on his radar, and and Andrea as well. So, I really hope that it it is the issue it needs to be. It's um, it's been really upsetting to see how mm. people don't have the foresight to realize that you're going to need long term care at some point. It behooves you all to care about this. And to do something now, strike while the iron is hot, because it's never going to be this hot. We're next. I pray to God we never see. No, no, it won't be long term care. So if we don't do something now, forget it. That is the most single handedly devastating message you can send to seniors and persons with disabilities in Ontario that their lives don't matter. Yeah, this this is where you learn your lessons. Uh, Thank you for the work that you do. And thanks for coming on today. You brought it. Coffee or no coffee. It was great. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, please do. Uh, thanks very much, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. I want to play this clip before we talk to Sabina Vora Miller. A couple people caught the tail end of it at 6 o'clock and wanted to hear it. So they did an FDA vote, and I like the transparency here. I do. Uh, for emergency use status for vaccines 5 to 11 years of age. This is a gentleman on the FDA voting committee. They did vote 11, sorry, 17 to 0 with one abstention. But this gentleman is not the abstainer. He voted to authorize emergency use for the Pfizer vaccine. I don't know who would disagree with giving parents the choice, but he does talk about mandating it here uh, and saying how problematic it is. Give him a listen, and then we'll talk about it next with Sabina. I'm looking forward to the conversation. This is Dr. Cody Meisner yesterday speaking at the FDA vote for the vaccines. Approximately 68% of the children who are hospitalized with COVID-19 um, have underlying comorbidities. So that means about 32% do not. And then if we were to take 40% of that group that may have immunity already, we're getting down to a very small percent of otherwise healthy 6 to 11-year-old children who might derive some benefit. And we simply don't know what the side effects are going to be. We don't, for example, it's not even clear that this vaccine will reduce rates of transmission. We're hoping that's the case, but we don't know. This vaccine is probably not going to prevent infection. It's going to prevent severe disease. So my worry is that I think I, my, my thought is that this vaccine should be available for those parents who, who are very eager to get it. Okay, so that's an interesting thought. And you might have heard six different things there. And maybe you agree with all six, maybe five, maybe four. But it creates a conversation. Uh, Sabina Vora-Miller is a pharmacologist. She's kind enough to join us on a weekly basis. We're going to talk about Halloween and some other things, too. Sabina, these are it's real, right? These are This is a this is a decision that parents have to consult with each other about. Um, it, it, it is something that maybe we all won't agree upon. But that, that doc, that epidemiologist right there is concerned about mandating the vaccines. How do you feel about it? So, I mean, first of all, we we mandate several different vaccines in childhood. Um, you know, when, when, when kids go to school, you have to have a, a record that shows that they've been vaccinated for a whole variety of different vaccine-preventable diseases. So to mandate it for COVID-19 is, is not going to be anything unusual. We already do it for, you know, several different vaccines. But, I mean, I think ultimately with Dr. Meisner, 
um, he voted for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the you know the uh, for recommending the use of these of the Pfizer vaccine in the five to eleven age range. So I mean I th- I think what we saw yesterday was a very thorough deliberation yesterday by the FDA, VR, BPAC, the advisory committee um, team, where they looked at a thorough risk benefit analysis. Um, they had a full day of deliberations and discussions on every single aspect of it. And at the end of that, they had a vote to see whether this vaccine should be recommended for use in 5 to 11. And as you said, 17 out of the 18 voted yes. Um, So I think that ultimately is, you know, what we need to be taking home with us. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting that they brought up something that I hope most parents are considering, too. And, And we had this reality check, didn't we, for all of us in February and March. In that when we started to get our most vulnerable people, whether it was our elderly or or people in long-term care homes, people who were immunocompromised, when we started to get them vaccinated, I I worry the messaging kind of fell through the cracks that, listen, this isn't going to prevent positive tests. This will greatly minimize transmission of the virus, but you could still test positive and be fully vaccinated. This is meant to eliminate the bad outcome. It's not necessarily guaranteed to um, minim- to to eliminate spread. Hopefully, it's a lot more minimal among kids. But I think parents think this is this is not. Parents have to know this is not going to be a magic wand that you wave it and there won't ever be spread among kids. This will just eliminate the bad outcomes. And that's exactly it. And you know what? In fact, those who are vaccinated are less likely to transmit than unvaccinated people. So when you are vaccinating, you are reducing transmission. It's not going to be zero transmission. It's going to be far less transmission than you would see when you're unvaccinated. And, you know, I think that it's also important to remember that it's not just about hospitalizations, not Mm -hmm. just about pediatric deaths, which you've seen, you know, as you saw in the FDA report yesterday, you know, nearly 10,000 COVID-related hospitalizations in pediatrics, um, you know, hundreds of deaths. Um, But you're also seeing thousands of of children who were diagnosed with multi-inflammatory syndrome, MIS-C, which we call other post-acute syndromes, long covid you know, I think all of these need to be taken into consideration. And, you know, the entire FDA um, de- deliberation yesterday talked about every single point of this. It's, 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 a, it's a totality that we're looking at. It's not We're not just focusing on one specific aspect, such as transmission. It really is to look at how we're looking at each and every aspect of it. Um, and then also we're talking about less disruptions to schools. I mean, you don't have, you know, mm-hmm. if you have less transmission, you're going to have less um, disruptions, uh, you know, where, where schools don't have to go into outbreaks and, and shut for two weeks and you're seeing less disruptions for kids seeing each other, their friends. There's so many advantages and, of course, advantages to the community to protect the vulnerable. A hundred percent. No, like you're thinking bigger picture and that that's why I enjoy our conversation. Sabina Vora Miller, our guest pharmacologist on Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Uh, one more on kids and then we'll get to to maybe uh, some issues that, that the province laid out last week in terms of when they want to lift certain restrictions. But Halloween, um, how do you feel about it? I, I think we look back and, and we weren't getting the, the most fantastic messaging. We were pre-vaccination last year, but on a Saturday night in, in cool air, we actually had a mild night. Probably the better thing would have been for kids to go out. I, anecdotally, I can tell you, I have relatives who decided, okay, no trick or treating. Let's have an indoor Halloween party. And these are relatives of mine in the States. They all got COVID. I worried we forced people indoors last Halloween weekend with smaller gatherings, but we would have been better off in the outdoor air. How do you feel about it this year? Yeah, you know, I think the situation is so different this year. I mean, we're last year we were going into a brutal second wave. This year we have vaccines and our case community cases are lower you know, Halloween in, in general, if you're keeping it outdoors, everyone is masked, you have very short interactions outdoors, um, it's it's really much lower risk, um, you know, than, than like you said, gathering indoors unmasked. Um, so I personally think that children have sacrificed a lot over the last year and a half, and Halloween is a low-risk activity. Um, and if parents feel comfortable sending their children out, I think it's completely okay uh, to, to go out trick-or-treating this year. Um, but again, you know, it really depends on each person's risk threshold, their comfort level, um, also the people who are at the door. You know, there are people who are not comfortable opening their doors and handing out candy. But again, for these situations, there's so much we can do. We can get creative. We can, you know, have candy buckets outside. We can do cool candy shoots. 
there's many things that we can do to be creative, but also still keep children safe. This is definitely something that can be done in a safe way. Yeah, I think there's a, there's, there's a million options depending on uh, people's va- a their vaccination status and their general health, and b uh, you know the the risk mitigation level. It, it's the one thing I think we gotta we got to pat each other on the back more for. And you and I talked about that last week. We've been able to risk mitigate some of the policies. Yeah, some of the government policies have worked in terms of uh, minimizing spread and minimizing bad scenarios. I want to get a read on how you felt last Friday. I felt really conflicted because, A, who doesn't want to see the end of this? Who doesn't look forward to April, May and being even in a starkly different place than we are now? But my heart sank a little bit with the announcement that January 17th we'll see um, the vaccine passports and the vaccine requirements to be doing some of the things that some of us are now so happy to do. I went to the movies for the first time yesterday. We're so happy to do those things, but we're doing it because we're confident that we're among fully vaccinated people and colleagues. And if they take that away in January, I worry. How did you feel on Friday with, with some of the contradictory messaging, I thought? You know, I mean, I think we should have learned at this point in the pandemic that putting a date on anything pandemic related is just setting us up for failure. Um, it's not like the pandemic looks at the calendar and says, OK, well, this day I'm going to stop spreading. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I, I thought having those dates prematurely set for a lot of different things um, really just made no sense. Um, I also think with the vaccine mandates, Having a very clear end date sort of negates all of the work. Um, I mean, because I mean, what's what's going to keep people from holding out for the next three months and just hunkering down, and, and then three months later saying, "All right, well, things are now back to normal." So I, I personally disagree with that. I know there's been a lot of pushback from the scientific community on this. I guess we'll see what happens next year. Um, you know, I think given past. Um, circumstances it's not necessary that when something is said it actually is done so i think we'll wait and see uh what happens next year but I, I, all of that is just too premature at this point i mean in january we, we might only just be starting to vaccinate those who are under five years old so we, we wouldn't even have that um under our belt it's interesting like maryland there's there's a county in maryland that wants to lift an indoor max mask mandate and i sent it to uh um, our friend Ryan Imgren, who'll be on the show on Friday, who's so phenomenal and, and practical with the numbers. And the ca- there's two things that have to happen in Maryland. Vaccination rate, fully vaccinated uh, rate has to get to 85 percent. And the case rate has to be below 50 per 100,000 people. We're there right now. But to your point, we need to we, there need to be benchmarks that are data based and statistic based with the mask mandate to be lifted. I I can't wait personally, but making an arbitrary date is rather silly, um, given we don't have a clue how the next five months may go better than anybody predicted, almost like the fall has here. Exactly. We have no idea what the future is going to hold. So I think that we should just, you know, take this as one day at a time and continue doing the things that are working that like, you know, that we are doing here in Ontario um, and see where that takes us. And But I, I am hopeful and I am very mm-hmm. optimistic that next summer will be much closer to normalcy, but I'm not putting a date on it. I'm just going to wait and see and continue to make sure that we're doing the right thing here. That's all you can do. Uh, Sabina, thank you very much for the time. We'll talk next week. Have a great Halloween weekend. Thank you so much. Take care. I watched uh, a couple of, well, I watched a couple of things yesterday. Can I recommend something called the movie theater? I'm serious. I went back yesterday. Uh, I saw Venom, Let There Be Carnage. It's not great. I'm sure uh, Tom Hardy, <laughs> Woody Harrelson, and Michelle Williams have all said, you know what? I feel like I've done more critically acclaimed work. I feel like they would say that. If you injected the truth serum into them. I mean, Tom Hardy's in The Revenant. I know DiCaprio finally won the Oscar for that, but Hardy easily could have won. Do you enjoy the Peaky Blinders? He's amazing in that. And I can't wait to see. My big mistake was not seeing Mad Max in theaters. I waited. I don't know why I did that back then. I don't think my kids were old enough to go at the time. Uh, We will go see Mad Max The Wasteland when it comes out. I can't tell if they've started filming it, but same director back. Uh, I believe they have Charlize Theron back. And uh, and Tom Hardy is Mad Max is going to be amazing. I was a big Mel Gibson fan. You got to be careful when you say you're a Mel Gibson fan. But I was a Mel Gibson Road Warrior fan. Let me start here on this, uh, and I'm going to get to this really interesting audio from the FD. What else I watched yesterday besides paying nine dollars for a ticket? The uh, you know the the beer I had at the uh, theater cost more, and the theaters is just a eminently different experience than I remember. I haven't gone since 1917. The movie, not the year. 
Um, but I went and saw 1917 with my whole family in February of 2020. We went on a Friday night, World War One movie, right? Although my then 11-year-old leans over to me at one point in time, and no word of a lie says, 40 minutes in, he says, when when is Hitler in this movie? And I'm like, that's not the right war. I, I, he was a soldier in it, but you know, it gets really complicated after that, and some things happen, and there's a rise to power. It's not this. That's not the movie. We're not watching that movie right now. So uh, either way, uh, we'll get to this FDA hearing. They put the video online of the FDA advisory panel making arguments to approve the COVID vaccine for kids. If you're a parent, and even if you're not, I think there's audio you'll want to hear, and I'll get to it this segment, I promise. But the Rogers battle continues. Rogers, Rogers, Rogers. A lot of conflict with the Rogers family. And yeah, uh, sh- you know, stockholders are are uh, you know stressed out. I don't doubt executives in the uh, Rogers building around Jarvis and Mount Pleasant. I used to walk into that building every day for a decade. I liked it. I, I liked my job there. I like it here. There's nowhere I'd rather be than here right now talking to you, plain and simple. But John Tory is in the middle of this now. Now, you might say he was last week, wasn't he? You're correct in your memory of this. John Tory took a three-hour meeting, almost a, uh, uh, you know, as, an, as a referee's role to settle down a meeting in this quote-unquote Rogers family feud and Tory said hey listen I made a promise to the late Ted Rogers he used to work at Rogers he was a CEO at Rogers prior to um and uh and ended up saying what I you know I, I made a moral obligation is the best way I can put it a moral obligation to Ted Rogers now I don't doubt that that's true. And I and, and it was written about like this was some conflict of interest last week. And I said it on the radio. I don't know what other people said, but I said, I don't see the conflict. It's in his spare time. He made a promise. He has an understanding that it, it probably is good for one of the largest companies in Canada, let alone employing tons of people in the GTA, to have an element of stability. I don't doubt that that's a priority of John Tory's. Okay. Um, so, but here's where things change. And Jennifer Pagliaro uh, from the Toronto star who we've had on from the city hall bureau busts this wide open here. He's getting paid a lot of money. How much? But you just guess like I'll, I'll give you three, two or three. Guess how much money John Tory's getting to, um, to, to basically advise a private company. No, more than that. Try again. Even more. Fine, you're not going to get it. How's 100 grand sound to you? Nice, fat, flat number with an odd number followed by five evens. Those evens are zeros. $100,000 a year. That's half his salary to be mayor of Canada's biggest city. Now, John Tory is independently wealthy. I don't have any problem with that. I have no problem with that. Make what you can make in our existence. I, I never, ever criticize people's uh, paychecks, bankrolls, where they live, who they are, where they came from. Just try and do the right things. Just try and do the right things and give an element back. And no doubt John Tory does that. Everything you hear about John Tory, he's a hardworking mayor. He will take those phone calls. He puts in tons of hours. He is, uh, he doesn't te- come on this station terribly much and he doesn't come on this show terribly much. We've asked a few times. Um, that's okay. I'm, I'm, you know, evenly critical of, uh, of John Tory. John Tory is very close with Rogers. Rogers doesn't have a talk radio station. Um, he's good buddies with the folks at Bell Media and that's okay because he used to work there. But, you know, there's, there's pals there and, and yet at, at the same time, in all fairness, uh, the news talk station, if you will, that's owned by Bell, is very fair and very critical of John Tory. A couple shows are uh, when they need to be. Okay, that's that's the truth. So I'm not digging in and having some media media crime here, but I'm pointing out that John Tory is well known throughout the city and has media ties. That's okay. Here. I can understand now why it is a conflict of interest to get paid $100,000 annually. It's not even the amount, but the amount doesn't help. Any sort of payment whatsoever, you can't play the game 
I'm doing something benevolent. I'm on my own time. But it's paid time, John. It's paid time, Mayor Tory. That's the distinction that we'd make here. And what if this was another company? What if this was Facebook? Would that be okay? You know that it wouldn't. You know that the mayor of Toronto couldn't weigh in properly on whether we should regulate Facebook or not. Or whether we should have standards that prevent, you know, kids from being on Instagram. Facebook owns Instagram. They own WhatsApp. We just did all this a month or so ago. So I understand that the ties, I mean, Jennifer's story is bang on the money. John Tory's ties to Rogers have been a source of conflict since he was elected mayor. Now they've dragged him into the middle of a bitter family feud. I don't envy the position that they put Tory in. But there's no doubt about it that getting paid this much money, half of his mayor's salary, is a conflict. Of course it is. Of course it is. Okay? Uh, for the last couple of years, uh, Jennifer Pagliaro writes, Tory has declared more conflicts of interest than any other city council member, half being related to Rogers. And I understand that. That's not a bad thing, by the way. When you have a conflict of interest, you say so, and you don't have a vote. But when there's a sway of influence, and when there's that much money being delivered, you can bet that there's influence. Uh, you might be asking, did any members of Rogers donate to John Tory's uh, electoral campaign in 2018 to remain mayor? Why, yes, they did. How did you know? The maximum allowed that anyone's allowed to donate to John Tory or any mayoral candidate, he was running against Jennifer Keysmat, you might, might remember. He ran against Rob Ford, soon to be Doug Ford, back in 2015. But in 2018, he ran against Jennifer Keysmat, was his main opponent. Who donated the $2,500 maximum to John Tory's mayoral campaign? Um, Edward Rogers, Suzanne Rogers, Martha Rogers. Six other names that have Rogers in it, okay? Many of the CEOs at Rogers right now, Phil Lynn donated. So <laughs> you can understand the concept of there being a conflict here. I don't know how anybody would miss it. Um, more on that as the morning continues. Let me pivot to this because I do think it's something that's going to get talked about this morning, and I want you to hear these pieces of audio. So I dig up yesterday, if you did notice, the FDA had a vote, an advisory panel had a vote for emergency approval of the COVID vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, for 5 to 11-year-olds. Dr. Cody Meisner, this is about a minute long, but weighed some of the pros and cons of a mandate. He ended up voting to approve the vaccine, but he wants this to be about choice. I thought it was rather convincing. If you're asking me again, would I vaccinate my fully healthy kids that have no comorbidities whatsoever? I would. But I also understand other parents saying I would not. Here's Dr. Cody Meisner. He's a doctor on the FDA advisory panel. I'm not and you're not. I'm on the Internet. So are you. I'm talking into a live microphone. He's on an FDA advisory panel. I might defer to his level of experience, but that's me. Here's what he said during yesterday's meeting. Approximately 68% of the children who are hospitalized with COVID-19 um, have underlying comorbidities. So that means about 32% do not. And then if we were to take 40% of that group, that may have immunity already, we're getting down to a very small percent of otherwise healthy 6 to 11-year-old children who might derive some benefit. And we simply don't know what the side effects are going to be. We don't, for example, it's not even clear that this vaccine will reduce rates of transmission. We're hoping that's the case, but we don't know. This vaccine is probably not going to prevent infection. It's going to prevent severe disease. So my worry is that I think I, my, my thought is that this vaccine should be available for those parents who, who are very eager to get it. Yeah. Exactly. I think he says what some parents are thinking, and maybe you're not going to hear it from, 
people who are on television and doctors who are on television, many of whom I trust, many of whom have donated their time. I don't know that you're going to hear what parents are thinking, but I think he says it right there. There are kids that are of higher risk than others. That's not ableism. That's practicality. And at parental direction, there has to be an understanding that parents make this call. There is minimal. I truly believe this in my heart of hearts and my brain of brains. There's minimal COVID-19 risk to healthy kids. And I don't know the benefit to the risk of an emergency use vaccination. Will I do it? Would I do it? Yes, I would. But it's going to be troublesome when it's mandated, compelled, or coerced. It's attempting to be coerced right now by Toronto Public Health. They're calling on the province to make COVID-19 vaccinations mandatory for 5 to 11-year-olds. They didn't do that with 12-plus. They didn't do that with 18-plus. They didn't do that in any workplace until September. They let this thing roll for six, seven months, and we've got great data. Listen, don't get me wrong. To me, vaccines, effective, safe, useful for adults. This is a more tricky game here to understand. Who could make that argument otherwise? He's saying what parents are thinking. If my kid's healthy, why would I do it? We don't have data that is real that has real world, real world efficacy. And here's what we don't have really quick. What we don't have as well, what we don't have as well is the idea that kids, it, it still won't spread. It will prevent illness. I think parents are thinking it's this magic snap of a finger and it'll stop kids from spreading to other kids. There's no proof of that whatsoever same as there wasn't with the adult vaccines which we were smart to take and i'm for the mandates if you've got a job that's very front-facing teachers should be mandated healthcare workers should be mandated all that stuff we got a more tricky scenario here with five to elevens am i wrong british columbia announced with dr bonnie henry they're in actually a worse covid state than we are far more cases per 100,000 people, depending on what you feel um, a case is right now. It's not what it was a year ago, but it, it still is a bit of an indicator. Uh, and they're going to make booster shots available for all British Columbians by May 2022. I'm curious as we go around the room here. I mean, we're all coming at it from different perspectives. I've got a fully vaccinated family. Rob's got a toddler. He's you know spending 12, he's spending 12 hours uh, with us on the radio with, with our show and Kelly's show and 12 hours trying to potty train. So I don't know when you're sleeping or enjoying uh, life in general, Rob. It's, I'm not. Okay, I can yeah. it's hard to tell. <laughs> um, and uh, and Dave Bradley, yet to vac fully be able to fully vaccinate his household, and Sheba Siddiqui, in a very full household, not able to vaccinate everybody in your household. So you guys probably have your eye on the ball for the kids' vaccines. You're not like, oh, when am I getting a third one yet, Dave? How do you look at it? Yeah, at this point, I, I'm pretty comfortable. I mean, looking at the numbers, which is what I do every day, and you can clearly see that it backs up what the doctors are telling us, that the vaccines are working mm -hmm. at keeping the fourth wave at bay. I mean, it was really a fourth blip, not even a wave uh, in Ontario. So I think the way we've rolled out things here in this province, because uh, originally the company said it has to be that second dose needs to be four weeks after you get your first. And then, of course, here in Canada, they said, well, let's get more people with a first dose and then we'll delay that second dose till later till we have more. And it seems that that made the vaccine a little bit more effective for, for most of us. So um, I'm pretty comfortable with two at this point. A, a booster, maybe, down the line. But yeah, I'm not climbing the walls to get to that. No, like Shiva, are, are you in the same category? You're like, I, I, you know, you get such freedoms back being fully vaccinated, yet still wanting to fully vaccinate your full household, that a third shot in the arm for, for maybe any of us is, is the furthest thing from our mind. right? And May seems forever away, forever away. I don't want a booster. I'm really, when I started reading these headlines and I saw that, you know, right now it's for vulnerable people. I don't want them to come to us, them being the government, and tell me that, hey, you've had your two vaccinations and here, here's your booster, you need a third. Because when does it end? So is this yeah. it? Is every every six months to a year going to tell me I need to go get another booster, get another shot, get vaccinated again? I am... I So I'm not an anti-vaxxer. There is a difference here because I am vaccinated. I am vaccine hesitant, meaning that before I got my vaccine, I wanted to learn as much as I could about it. I did a lot of research. I was not one of the first people out of the gate. Um, and then when I saw all this stuff coming out about AstraZeneca, that scared me as well. Oh, because, you know, all of these 
you know, it's not recognized in certain countries. It's you're not double dosed if you know you have AstraZeneca when that first came out. Would, would you have been eligible for AZ first then? Like yes, and that's what and, you got. No, I didn't. You did. See, you I waited. waited. Okay, I, I got waited, you. and I remember. Um, I had arguments with certain friends who were like, what are you doing? I'm like, I just want to wait. I just want to see. And yeah. I'm not saying six months. Give me a month or two to just get comfortable, make sure people aren't dropping dead. And then all of this started coming out about AstraZeneca. And then I just started getting my anxiety did go up. Uh, granted, whoever is in our house that can be vaccinated is vaccinated. But I am very nervous about it. Are you nervous? That follows up then. Are you nervous about it for your kids? Or is it just a, it's a no brainer? You'll you'll do it. You can't wait. My kid, uh, neither. My kids okay. are, I mean, look, I, I want them to be healthy. I want them to be safe. But more than that, I also, they also have a grandfather that comes to see them every few days or every week. And mm. he's double vaccinated as well. But look what happened to, I can't help but say this, Colin Powell. He was double vaccinated and he passed away last week. Uh, so it makes me nervous for my dad as well. I got a grand, I got a mom, uh, that's nervous about, she'd want all six of her grandkids and, and they're five out of six right now. To be fully vaccinated. So, yeah. And, and Dave, like, I, I wonder if this is where we're headed. You know, if, if we're talking about it being endemic, if we're talking about it being like the flu, give the options to people. But I don't know. I don't know how much you'll be able to mandate going forward. Yeah. I, I just don't think we can get into a society where this is a mandatory thing that everybody has to do every single year of their existence the rest of eternity. It, but because the, the flu is like that, we, yeah. we never push people too hard. It's like, hey, it's available. If you feel like you need it, if you feel like it's, it's that time of year where you're at more risk than others, go for it. It's here for you. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people do take up the, the government when they do offer that flu shot every year as a quote-unquote booster, right? Because they, they have to chase these different strains of the flu virus and, and update your immune system. Whether or not you get it, it's always just a suggestion. Um, and, and I think probably that's the way that the COVID vaccine is going to go eventually. I think once you have that initial protection and it shows it works, then I, I think probably the, the government will just take a take a step. They're not going to sit there at every Raptors or Leafs game and say, show us that you've had your 45th shot at this point. Can't do that interminably, no. No, it's eventually <laughs> it's going to be like, okay, you, you've, you've been fully vaccinated, you know, and you can have a booster if you feel comfortable. If you don't feel comfortable, you do it what you want. Sheba can't go to dinner with her hiking group if unless no. they're quintuple vaxxed. Quadruple <laughs> vaxxed at the door, they're getting turned away. It quintuple. That's okay. I'll go to vaxxed. dinner. I'll go to dinner alone, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Which is perfectly normal. That's weird. I don't even know what's after quintuple. Septuple. I don't want to say something wrong here. Octuple. <laughs> or you can eat on That's the hike eight. too. You can go on a hike. Oh, yeah, <laughs> get your food right. to go. Jerks, jerks, all of you. What, what hey, do you think Tupperware is for? I just want to say, Sheba, I've never mentioned this, but I, I also like to hike. So, there you so, go. We yeah, got to go on a hike. We do. Sure. Once Rob gets to sleep in, he, he'll be happy to, yeah, uh, yeah, to go for hiking like crazy. <laughs> and he can convince you to nap. Everybody can. Uh, no, can, no. I live you know. by High Park. I'm always hiking with the dog. Come on. Oh, Love that. Nice. Oh, my gosh. And those cherry blossoms, forget about it. I like Rich. to hike. Hopefully, they don't fence them in this time. I like to hike to the fridge. Yeah, uh, yeah not bad. Or hike not up bad your pants. <laughs> hike to my kids' Halloween candy <laughs> as of Monday morning. <laughs> hey, thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast, a live show tomorrow on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, beginning at 5 30. So if you enjoyed the podcast, you may like listening to us live on the radio. And you can use the Radio Player Canada app to find us there. Have yourself a great Wednesday.